Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Laura Jost, Vice President of Content for the American Journal of Managed Care, and today we're bringing you something a little different with part one of a two-part podcast series on opportunities for biosimilars, specifically adalimumab biosimilars in dermatology, gastroenterology, and rheumatology. Today, we'll be highlighting a discussion with a panel of experts moderated by Dr. Ryan Humschild, Director of Pharmacy Services at Emory Healthcare and Winship Cancer Institute. Our expert panel includes Dr. Alice Gottlieb, Clinical Professor and Medical Director in the Department of Dermatology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Dr. Bensi Abraham, Professor of Clinical Medicine in the Academic Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Houston Methodist Hospital, Dr. Vivek Strand, biopharmaceutical consultant and adjunct clinical professor in the Division of Immunology and Rheumatology at Stanford University School of Medicine, and Jamie T. Brogan, nurse practitioner at Northwestern Medicine. The topics of conversation for today's podcast include the provider and payer considerations for transitioning patients to biosimilars, challenges associated with biosimilars, approaches to prescribing biosimilars over reference products, and more. I'd first like to start us off talking about what are the opportunities that exist around biosimilars. And, and Jamie, I, I, I'm going to look to you for this question because I feel like, you know, if someone really has a good, you know, discussion around opportunities generally for biosimilars, it's going to be you. And so if you could share with us, you know, what are some of the opportunities provided by biosimilars for inflammatory conditions? We know about cost. You know, there could be applicability. It could reduce the cost of care. Um, and really, if you could talk about those opportunities, maybe frame it up for us. What are some of the opportunities for providers with adalimumab biosimilars? and then contrast that with why should some of the payers consider covering the adalimumab biosimilars as well? Excellent questions. Uh, so I think, you know, there, there is a lot of opportunity. And I think that um, obviously it's not creating a new class. We have adalimumab. We've been using adalimumab for a while with great success and a lot of comfort level. Um, and now we just have more adalimumab available, which is great um, just because of the additional opportunity, again, primarily for our cost-saving opportunities. Um, we are hoping to drive down the cost of, of adalumumab, freeing up funds potentially for other opportunities and treatments for patients. Um, as providers, as we've discussed the, the Voltaire trials that um, also included Crohn's disease. Um, so having that comfort level, knowing that your indication was studied and you can expect the same response from this product is really reassuring as a provider. It gives us an ex a really critical level of confidence um, in order to translate that to our patients, which will which will be really important when uh, they will end up transitioning. Which uh, in my practice, which um, I do exclusively see GI, um, not our other. Um, immune-mediated diseases, uh, we have not seen a tremendous amount of transition uh, with adalimumab, but our comfort level was greatly increased with, um, as my colleagues have mentioned, our previous biosimilar transition. So um, it's it's an opportunity that I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing um, our providers have that level of confidence and, and our ancillary staff as well. We need to make sure our nurses, our bio coordinators, our medical assistants, all of the staff in our office who are going to be having contact with our patients really understand how to talk about biosimilars, what the studies are showing, so we're all comfortable with it. And then from the payer perspective, I mean, 
it's going to come down to how they're going to negotiate price, how they're going to make these available, how they're going to transition their tiering system, because it's usually they're, you know, with generics, not biosimilars. We see this generic preferred, then the preferred brand, and then the non-preferred brand is tiered, offering a lower out-of-pocket cost for the patient. Um, but with so many biosimilars available, I think a new modification of that tiering system will be helpful. Um, and then just negotiating education from their perspective um, to make sure that they're providing education within the payer system. They understand what's new and upcoming with biologics and that they're providing education to providers and other offices to make sure that we're all sort of on the same page. So I think there's lots of opportunities, even though we're still utilizing the same agent. So, I, I, And I would agree with you. I mean, you know, the number one thing, if we can reduce healthcare spend and do it in an effective way where we don't compromise outcomes, I think that's something we can all really rally around. There are some challenges that providers are thinking about as well. And Dr. Gottlieb, probably start with you. When we think about challenges that colleagues are experiencing related to biosimilars with inflammatory diseases, maybe what are some that come to mind specific for dermatology? Well, as I stated before, I do not think that dermatology has a lot of experience with biosimilar um, adalimumab products yet. So I, I really can't comment on that. I, I don't think that uh, for infliximab and rituximab, which we do use in dermatology, that there's been really any problem with, uh, other than you have to rewrite the prescription and it's more work. <laughs> but but that other than that, there really isn't a problem. And my feeling is that if the doctor is comfortable with it, the patient will be comfortable with it. The patient in these situations trusts us by and large. There is a population though who I think really truly lowering the cost of drug, which we have yet to see with the biosimilars, what really, really will matter is in the Medicare population because they pay a pretty high percentage of the cost of the drug. So I hear that in Europe, it's, uh, biosimilar adalimumab costs $5,000 a year or less. And if that would happen in the United States, it means that my Medicare patients, who almost none of them can afford a biologic, can now afford one. And I think that is the population, which is 20% of the U.S. population in the year 2025. It will have a huge impact. However, I don't have a crystal ball and I'm not a marketer. I'm not so sure that the price of the uh, biosimilars will really go down that dramatically. But if there's one population that really feels the brunt of that, it's the Medicare population. The Medicaid population, commercial payer, uh, in Medicaid, my experience, if they cover it, and I have had no trouble getting adalimumab covered either for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, or hidronitis suppurativa, the, the patient doesn't pay anything. And for the commercial uh, covered, if there's a problem, the uh, for brand name Numira, the company picks up the differential. But it's the Medicare population who, it's really sad these people have contributed to society and their insurance for decades, and then they turn 65, and we're back to the same, you know, methotrexate alone or phototherapy or something you know is not going to be that great for them. And it's sad. They've contributed so much to the country, and then this is what happens to them. So I hope the price will go down a lot, especially for that population. Well, you know, I appreciate you sharing, you know, some of the clinical take. And it sounds like from a dermatology perspective, clinical challenges you've been able to mitigate, but some of that opacity in terms of 
what is the patient out-of-pocket expense? And if you're a Medicare patient, you're paying co-insurance, how is that going to impact them? And I think that's a relevant topic for sure. It really impacts them like they don't get the drug. I mean, yeah. it, it's not a little impact. It's you know, almost all or nothing. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a really pertinent topic. And I'm hoping we dig into that too, because I think thinking about the patient and their ability to get the medication is so key. We think about challenges too. Maybe Dr. Abraham, from a gastroenterology perspective, what challenges have you had when implementing biosimilars and what do you think will exist with the multiple products getting ready to come into the market and be utilized? If adalimumab biosimilars were the first biosimilars we were going to use in gastroenterology, there would have been a ton more challenges than that exist today. We actually now feel more comfortable with biosimilars in general because we had to make a lot of switches from our infliximab originator to the to the bisimilar, and we've become comfortable with using it for our patients. And especially as an infusion medication, the biggest concern we had was you know, safety, I mean, from a patient's perspective and from the provider's perspective as well. And there was a lot of concern over even the nocebo effect, which we can all, all, always discuss in, in the future as well. But having um, utilized infliximab bisimilars, it removed a ton of challenges that we would potentially could face with adalimumab. However, having said that, with adalimumab, it's not just two or three options, almost nine different options you know, in the near future. So with that comes, well, which drug is what and what are the subtle differences between each medication? The patient's used to getting one injection at home, all of a sudden they're switched to a different agent, are they, is this the same medication? If we don't know that they got switched or if the patient didn't know they got switched and there's confusion all around, so confusion could be one major part of it. If one of the biosimilars um, is not citrate-free um, and they're having pain now with their injection where they never had it before, that's another challenge we have to overcome and switch to another agent, if, especially if they cannot handle it. Um, and then the different dosing, and you know, if someone was on a higher dose, let's say, now they only have the 40 milligram available. They have to take two injections. Another challenge that we have to face with them as well. So as you can imagine, a lot of things can occur as a challenge, but this is where being informed from the patient side, the provider side, educating them on what to expect with that medication and how is it different from the agent they were taking previously can help re remove or reduce those challenges that we potentially can face. Yeah, I like the way you went about that. I mean, challenges are going to exist. And, and you know, like you said, it's not even selecting the product for the institution, but making sure the unique payer plan also covers that one. And if they don't, making sure that you can make a switch on the fly that still keeps the patient on treatment, doesn't delay any further time to treatment from a prior authorization perspective. And then also you roll out that education. And I think that's going to be key, right? We've got good therapies. There's good things ahead, as we've heard from Jamie earlier. But how do we mitigate some of those challenges that ultimately will come up? And, you know, lastly, I want to hear about challenges from rheumatology because I feel like with adalimumab, such high volume there, and so many patients rely on this therapy. Dr. Strand, what's your take on the challenges that may come up from the provider perspective? Well, I think it's going to be very interesting to find out what the payers have, will decide and which, which biosimilars they may choose and what the impact that is on the patients. For instance, the formulation may be one impact. But another really important part is that um, Medicare patients who have a co-insurance, they still have the issue of the donut hole. There's a period of time that they still have to pay for their medication until the co-insurance will pick up the remainder amount. And this is not inexpensive. And we have no way of controlling how patients are billed. 
and what they're built, nor do we know how the payers go about making these decisions. And uh, unfortunately, these these co-insurance co-pays are quite a bit, particularly in the first three to five months of the therapy every year. And it's a, a yearly thing. However, we've got so many specialty pharmacies now that we work with and so many therapies that use the specialty pharmacies, it's almost impossible for us to keep track of anything that uh, we can track to tell us what's the impact on the patients. And that's been a really big problem too, because the, the pay, payments and whether there's help from a pharmaceutical company for the cost that may not be covered by the insurance is really difficult from the point of view of an academic center because we don't inform our patients about these uh, pharmacy um, aid programs and those vary broadly between each of the companies as well as the biosimilar companies. And they can offer some significant relief but most of our patients uh, have no access to that. It's very unfortunate. So I'm quite concerned about how we try to understand the payments. So when we talk about barriers to biosimilars, I think there's always decisions that had to be made by our providers. And Dr. Gottlieb, you've been a big adopter of biosimilars, but I'm sure not every provider in dermatology across the country is because there's always a decision here. Um, talk us through a little bit um, about how are you navigating the decision-making process between choosing a biosimilar or the reference product for a patient? I, I do believe that given their choice, most dermatologists would like to stick with the brand. I'll mention here, Umira, I mean, because they're familiar with it. They're familiar with how the company works, et cetera. I think that there will need to be a great deal of education onto how a drug gets approved to be biosimilar and the importance of interchangeability, what kind of, and, and what, what are the positive things about these studies? What are the limitations, right? You're not interchanging between multiple biosimilars, you know, every two months. I mean, that study doesn't exist. I mean, that'll be done, I guess, in registries. But, but I, I strongly believe as my, myself that I will strongly prefer a, um, a, biosimilar that has interchangeability in the label. And if and I want to be told when my when the patient is being changed. And I would appeal that if, if, if there is a biosimilar that has interchangeability in the label and another one that does not, I would I, I have no trouble, you know, appealing and saying, you know, this is a better drug for my patient and they have better evidence based medicine. I also would prefer a, drug, a biosimilar that has been tested in the disease I'm treating. So if it's psoriasis, I'd like to see a study in psoriasis. Um, Voltaire was one that had that in psoriasis. Why? First of all, the outcome measures are different. Second of all, the doses are different. And, and so uh, those are just some of the reasons why I, that would be a preference for me, would, it could, would make me choose one biosimilar over another, if I have any say. And it, uh, but, um, and I have to admit, I'm sorry, I know that you're the director of pharmacy at your hospital. I want to know when my patients are getting switched from one drug to another. I don't want this to be done without my uh, knowledge or input. 
Well, I have a different opinion to some extent. First of all, in rheumatology, um, our patients actually don't stay on drugs for long periods of time. They have a good response if they do, and those will be the exceptions that, for instance, will receive that biologic for years. But by and large, our patients are, are switching maybe on a yearly by yearly basis. Uh, it's, it just seems to be that that's what happens, the disease change, so on and so forth. I think the other part of rheumatology is that adalimumab is the first biologic, by and large, that the payers allow us to use after, after methotrexate in rheumatoid arthritis. Um, it also means it may be the first biologic in either spondylitis or psoriatic arthritis. And so it is very broadly used. But once that is, once a patient has failed that therapy, we switch to another agent completely. And so the role for the biosimilar adalimumab will definitely be there, but they're often going to be there as the first therapy, which will be interesting. And I, I don't think we'll have a lot of choice about which ones we can use. I agree with Dr. Gottlieb that I would prefer to use an interchangeable biosimilar. But in fact, biosimilar data is really such that we know that the agents um, are as highly similar as they really could be even without the interchangeability um, index. And we know that EMA has already announced that all of the biosimilars they've approved are by definition interchangeable. So it's an interesting point. But I think what's also interesting is that we don't usually switch within the class. And so that then takes some of the opportunities that would be so good for us with the biosimilars to adalimumab, because we are now going to probably switch to a different class of therapy. And so that's going to be an interesting impact. But finally, there's one more thing called prior authorization, which drives rheumatologists crazy. After that first one that's allowed, after methotrexate or, or as the first biologic, then after that, everything is prior auth. And that is so much time-consuming work and very frustrating. And oftentimes, we don't actually uh, be able to achieve getting the therapy we want. So I'm wondering how all this is going to work out with the nine biosimilar adalimumabs and what choices will still really be available. It will be interesting. And it'll be interesting to see which payers mandate which agents. Well, I think you both gave a great overview. And, um, you know, one of the things I'll say as a, as a pharmacy leader, I, I agree with shared decision-making too, and we work closely with our providers. And I think, you know, we work with disease state working groups to find out what are those preferred therapies, which are the ones that have the interchangeability. And if we can't get that, what's going to be a non-preferred? And I think those are decisions that providers are going to have to sit with. Everyone has a different comfort level with interchangeability. Everyone has a different comfort level, whether something's been studied in my specific disease state or not. That's all we have for today. Please tune in to the next podcast in this series where we will discuss additional insights on switching patients from the reference to the biosimilar, auto substitution, the impact of biosimilar utilization on payers and pharmacy benefit managers, and more.
For more updates in managed care, visit AJMC.com and sign up for our e-newsletter. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Thanks again for listening.